podcast by second-year med students at William Carey University College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Logan Rogers, and I am joined with my co-host, Saman Galari. Today, we'll be having a discussion about addiction medicine with Dr. Mitchell, one of our beloved professors. The conversation will be focused on suboxone therapy, harm reduction, and barriers faced by patients with substance use disorders. Dr. Mitchell, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me this morning. I uh, did my undergraduate education at Baylor University in Texas, uh, attended osteopathic medical school at University of North Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, and graduated a long time ago. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about your experience with addiction medicine? Because you're a board certified emergency medicine doctor. So how did you end up there and what that looks like in your clinic now? Uh, yeah, I, um, I practiced emergency medicine for over 25 years. And really, during that time, I had no real interest in addiction medicine and just saw patients who were abusing medication as just a real difficult part of, of working in the emergency medicine field. After I left the ER, I was doing some other work uh, through the VA. And unfortunately, one of my children got involved abusing opioids. Came home, she came home for a visit. We found this out, got her in a treatment program uh, because I really didn't know that much about treatment programs in the area. And it ended up being not a very good experience for her. Fortunately, she's very hard-headed, uh, not at all like her father. Um, and she kicked it. And fortunately, has now been clean for uh, over nine years, married, working, two children. So that kind of is what prompted me. I thought if she could get better in a really, what I thought a very weak program, how much better could it be if there was a program that was a little more patient-centered? And so at that point, to be able to prescribe Suboxone, uh, which is a combination medication of buprenorphine and naloxone, you had to do an eight-hour course that could either be done online or in person, uh, then pass a, a written exam, and then have your DEA license changed to get what was known as an X license. So I did that, and along with a, a co-worker of mine, had planned on going into practice with an older doctor on the coast who was also doing suboxone. Either fortunately or unfortunately, the first night that he and I went to work at the clinic, we were informed that the other doctor had retired the week before. And so we basically inherited a clinic. Um, and like I said, that was about eight years ago. And we've been going now for that long uh, at the clinic. Um, we've had a few doctors join us, a few doctors leave. And currently there are three of us uh, that are all practicing part time in the clinic and also have a nurse practitioner that comes in and does some family medicine at the clinic as well. So let's talk about an overview of addiction medicine. Dr. Mitchell, could you tell us a little bit about what that is and why addiction medicine is such a crucial field nowadays, especially considering the opioid epidemic? Basically, addiction medicine is much broader than what we do. We have a very limited uh, scope of our practice, which is basically just for opioid addiction, which of course has become such an epidemic uh, in our society today. And that's why the government 
loosened a lot of the re restrictions and the requirements for practicing with Suboxone. The law came out in the early 2000s because there was so much abuse of opioids. They felt like by making it easier for practitioners to be able to get licensed or get certified to practice this type of medication, it might open it up and bring more folks into family practice doctors and that sort of thing. Up until really Suboxone came along, most patients were going to methadone clinics, which were very highly structured and became very onerous and expensive for a lot of the patients in that they had to go to the clinic every day, be handed the medication, take the medication in front of the practitioners. The nice thing about Suboxone is it can be done as an outpatient. And so patients would come in one time a month, get a prescription for a one month uh, supply of medication, and then they can go on and, and live their lives. They're able to, to be at home with their families. They're able to work. And to me, that's been probably the biggest reason that it's been so successful. So going into harm reduction, which is an approach that aims to minimize the negative consequences associated with substance abuse. Harm reduction acknowledges that abstinence may not be immediately achievable for everyone that focuses on practical, realistic strategies to improve overall well-being and safety. The goal is to meet patients where they are. Person-first language is a way we define a person not by their addiction, but putting person first. So instead of saying an addict, we say a person who has a substance abuse disorder. Could you provide some specific examples about like harm reduction techniques you may talk about in your practice, talk about with your patients? Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because so many of my patients actually still just refer to themselves as addicts. And so when we tried to help them change their perspective a little bit, uh, it really does make a difference. Our clinic is very laid back. And a lot of that is so that the patients feel more comfortable. And that really begins not only in just changing the, the terminology that we use, we haven't gone so far as to call our patients customers yet. I really don't care for that. But as soon as they walk in, they meet probably two of the friendliest women on the face of the earth that never make them feel like they are less than a very important person. Unfortunately, that's not universal. Number one, in a lot of pharmacies, the patients are looked down on as if they were still trying to come in and score narcotics. And, and patients pick up on that very quickly. If you, if you have any attitude at all, they're gonna pick up on that and they are not gonna really be very open to working with, with whomever it is that, that's doing that. Uh, and so our clinic, we try to be very laid back, even though we, in some areas, we're very structured, but in the personality and the person-to-person -person relationship, we try to keep it very, very chilled. Yeah, creating this relaxed and safe environment for patients navigating their health challenges is important, I think, in any type of medical setting. In terms of specific harm reduction strategies, there are plenty that have proven to be transformative in fostering that same type of well-being. From needle exchange programs, providing clean syringes to reduce the risk of infections, to supervised consumption sites that offer supportive and medically supervised space for substance use, these initiatives not only create safer conditions, but they play a crucial role in connecting individuals with the care that they need. Um, it seems 
that Dr. Mitchell specifically has a focus in suboxone therapy, um, which is also a huge beacon of hope for people with substance use disorders. I'll let Dr. Mitchell really get into it, but suboxone has also been a huge cornerstone in that pursuit of recovery, and it has saved lives and overall improved the health of people facing substance use challenges. So on that suboxone therapy, um, could you just tell us a little bit about how that works and maybe what kind of patients you're going to be prescribing that to? Yes. Like I said, Suboxone, it's a combination medication, buprenorphine and naloxone. The buprenorphine basically blocks the mu receptors in the brain, which is where the opioids, the medication, basically affects the brain and is part of the way the patients become addicted to the opioids. The buprenorphine actually goes and clings harder to those mu receptors so that if the patient is taking the suboxone, it really does two things. The biggest thing is it stops withdrawal symptoms that they have, and it also helps alleviate the cravings which patients have as they begin to withdraw, they they have strong cravings. And so by having a medication like this, number one, most of of the patients that come in, their biggest fear is going into withdrawal. And so once we can alleviate that fear and then take away the cravings that they have, the patient has a much higher chance of success. The other medication, the naloxone, is medicine that we used a lot in the ER to reverse opioid overdose, also known as Narcan. And so by that being in the medication, number one, patients can't overdose on it. And it also takes away some of the, because of the the way the medications work, there's no euphoria associated with it that many patients get when they do take opiates. You talked about what suboxone therapy was. Um, I think it's really important to address any misconceptions or stigmas surrounding suboxone. And one such that I've heard about is that it's just replacing one addiction with another. So could you shed some light on this? Yeah, we, we hear that a lot. In fact, several of my current patients either get grief from their family members because they have, they're now taking this as opposed to, you know, an, op- an opiate or a narcotic pain medication, or they don't even tell their, their family that they're in treatment. To me, you know, one of the best examples I heard was from a, an older doctor a number of years ago that's, that's been in addiction medicine for a long time. He said, you know, if you have a patient that's diabetic, you don't ever criticize that patient for taking their insulin or their metformin or whatever, they take the medicine to treat their condition. Even if their blood sugar improves and their A1C gets better, they don't stop their medication. So even though this is a little bit different, you know, our goal with every patient that comes into our clinic is to help them get to the place where they want to be. When I first started doing this, my goal was in you know for every patient that came in within a year, I would have them off of the suboxone and clean and back into you know living their lives without medication. Pretty early on, I had one patient that explained to me when I was talking to him about the taper. He said, "Doc, if you stop giving me the medicine, I'll go get it somewhere else." He said, "I know who I am. I know what my past has been." I want to stay on this for probably forever. And so what we did was we, we 
started him on a dose and we tapered his dose down to the point where it was as low as he could tolerate. And then we put him on a maintenance program, you know, that keeps him on that level. And this is a guy that, you know, work has a very influential government job and he's able to perform his job. His family life is now very stable and he hunts and fishes and does all the stuff that he always wanted to do. And so the medicine, even though he's still taking a very small dose of the medicine, it's given his life back to him. And I hear that from a lot of my patients. My goal still for most is to have them completely off the medication. That always makes us excited. I've got one guy right now that's probably two months away from finishing the program. And what that does for him is it frees up his life so that now he doesn't have to come see me once a month. He has a lot more flexibility with his scheduling and whatnot. And so, you know, the goal for each patient is what the patient wants and expects out of it. I like that. So it's crucial to understand that Suboxone is a medically supervised treatment, as you said, that allows individuals to regain control of their lives uh, by reducing cravings and withdrawal symptoms. So could you elaborate when a patient comes in, when are you thinking, okay, I want to start Suboxone therapy with you? Well, pretty much when they come to our clinic, they come knowing that that's what we do. I have had a few patients that have come in that are doing meth, that are doing cocaine, and they think, well, we can just substitute, you know, this for that. And unfortunately, it doesn't help with that. That's a totally different form of addiction medicine. What I like so much about our practice is I go in one afternoon a week. Uh, I see people once a month on their schedule. And it gives us more of an opportunity, I guess, to get to know the person and to figure out. And, and so much of what is behind addiction is often psychological issues it's much more complicated, obviously, than I kind of expected it to be. And there are times I feel more like I'm a psychologist or a psychiatrist than I am anything else. But I think it's important that we make our, our patients, number one, feel comfortable. And at our first meeting, we go through, we get a good history from the patient, and then just talk a lot about what their expectations are and how we can you know, help with those expectations. And our goal is not and I tell this to all of our new patients, our goal is not to get you to do what we want you to do, but for us to help you do what you want to do. And it lets, it kind of lets them drive the program. Could you talk about some insights on the safety profile of Suboxone as compared to other treatments? Okay. Um, before I even started doing this, I did some research on Suboxone. And just like with, with a lot of treatments, you know, there's some controversy associated with uh, kind of like you brought up earlier, trading one one addiction for another, uh, because really one of the problems with Suboxone is it it can almost be harder to get off of for some folks than the actual opiates that, that they're using. What made me feel much more comfortable was a number of our patients that have come to us from pain management where they were seeing a pain management doctor. I definitely think a good pain management physician is worth their weight in gold. But what they found was that to control their pain, the doctor just have, kept having to give them more and more medication as their tolerance to the medication grew. And they were concerned about that. Unlike what most people think of when they think about opioid use disorder or addiction is very few of my patients started out just abusing drugs for fun. Probably 75% of our patients 
started out with a health issue or a bad surgical outcome or some other reason that they needed to be on the opiates. And then it just got out of control. In fact, I, we talk in pharmacology and in class, sometimes I think we, we think of these people, you know, well, this, this person didn't get started on this abuse profile until they'd been on the medicine for two or three years. I actually have one patient who is in her 70s who had back surgery, was on medication. The surgery went actually very well. She was put on pain medication for like two or three weeks post-surgical. After those three weeks, she was addicted. She was unable to give up the medication. So she kept going back to the doc and then finally said, I got to quit. So she, she started coming to us. I feel like that's a big problem as well. Thinking people who were just seeking out opioids to begin with, rather than the people who were in pain, maybe in an accident, right. or even like, uh, like young athletes who get a severe injury and want to keep playing. Right. So they're relying on those opioids. They are a much more common population than most people would think. Right. Yeah. So you already shared a couple stories with us, which we appreciate. Uh, could you share maybe a patient story that illustrates the positive impact of suboxone therapy that sticks out to you? Yeah. In fact, when, when I first started doing this, you know, I really didn't know what to expect. I was very naive <laughs> as to what this was going to be. And I think one of the first things that came to my mind was the medication is was very expensive when I first started practicing because there were no generic suboxins, you know. And so it may cost a patient $400, $500 a month to get their prescriptions, you know, plus their office visits. But yet, even at, with that much money being spent, I had patients tell me, this is the first year I could buy Christmas presents from my children because now they're able to work and they're not going out buying drugs. One of the other things that was kind of a, a generalized thing is that patients would tell me, you know, this is the first time in X number of years that the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning is not where am I going to get my meds, where am I going to get my fix, but, you know, what am I going to have for breakfast or what am I going to do today, wow. you know, at work or whatnot. Probably one of my, I guess one of my earliest successes was a, a young woman that had actually been a paramedic and had a bad back injury where she actually, I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's not, you know, they were coming out of the house with a very heavy patient backing up on the porch and she fell off the porch as she was pulled in the stretcher and messed her back up. So again, got addicted to pain medication, decided she couldn't live that way anymore. And so she started coming to see us and was doing very well in the program. We were gradually, you know, inching her down but she just kind of hit a plateau and couldn't get any better. And back, gosh, I don't know, three years ago, maybe four years ago, they came out, we came out with an injectable uh, medication called Sublocate, which was a once a month injection. And so as soon as she found out about it, she said, I want to start that. And I thought her reasoning was really good. She said, I got, part of my problem is I identify popping a pill in my mouth with making me feel better. And she, so she said, every time I put something in my mouth, to me, just kind of revisiting what got me here in the first place. And literally in six months with the injections, she finished the program and said that it just made all the difference in the world, just that one really, really small step. And so that made me a lot more sensitive to some of the things that, that as a physician, I never really thought about, you know, most of our medication goes in our mouth. 
And so that was one of those one of those kind of aha moments where I started thinking, the more I can listen to patients and pick up on their sensitivities and their needs, the better off I'm going to be as a, as a, as a doctor. Yeah, that's really eye-opening. Accessibility, I think, is a critical aspect in that. And so can you talk about the availability of Suboxone therapy in different regions and healthcare settings and if there's been any policy changes or initiatives that could significantly improve that access to for patients? Again, you know, when I got, got into it, instead of having to go back and do like a two or three year addiction medicine fellowship or whatnot, when Suboxone, you know, became a very viable treatment option for the government to open it up so we could be licensed in a much shorter time frame, much easier to make more, more access easier to other patients. And it was kind of geared toward primary care doctors. In fact, our, our point where our, our clinic was had the most doctors working, we were really a, a mixed band of yahoos, I guess, because <laughs> there were a couple of us that were ER guys. We even had uh, an internist and two ophthalmologists wow. that, that were working part-time in the clinic with us. And, and they all had different reasons for doing it. You know, some, some were doing it because they had actually had some addiction issues in the past um, and felt like they could give back a little bit by doing that. It's now become much more simple, uh, as I understand it, because now you don't even have to do the, the certification course to be able to prescribe Suboxone. Pretty much any physician can do it. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, I think, because I don't feel like the training I had to go through was very much more than just, you know, taking an online course and taking a test. But I think the goal is to try to get more physicians interested in that. But I think a lot of the problem is physician perception, is so many doctors are put out by having to deal with drug-seeking behavior and drug-seeking patients and and it's no fun. I mean, I, one of the things I enjoyed probably the least about my ER practice was having to deal with people that were trying to score drugs. But my experience has been that by the time a person comes to our clinic, they want to get better. I'm not having to argue with them about the medication or about what our requirements are at the clinic or anything of that nature. They, they want to be there. I think perception from the patient side them feeling like they're being put down by not only, unfortunately, a lot of practitioners, but pharmacists and different other people that when they find out they're on Suboxone, the first thought is this is a druggie. And that's that's not the perception that, that we as medical professionals need to have. Definitely. So you've mentioned a few, uh, what I guess I would consider barriers to treatment, such as the perception and also maybe physicians not really wanting to work with these patients, maybe they see them as like high complexity patients, maybe uh, difficult patients to work with. Um, are there any other uh, specific barriers to entry from the patient or physician side? Well, of course, there are not enough people uh, practicing, and that's that's probably the biggest. I know when I started doing this, I was doing it part time, just as I am now, and I was thinking, you know, I'll I'll limit my patient population to about fifty people, and that in a month, that's that's a decent number of folks to see. Uh, one afternoon a week. I'm now up to about 100, which is kind of more than, I mean, it's not terrible, but it's it's a little more work than I want to be doing at this age. Um, but, you know, who else is going to do it? And so we've added a few new docs to our group, and that has helped a little bit. And, and they are very complicated. You know, I mean, I've got 
one of the things I, I guess I like about our practice is because we're small, nobody's pushing me to see X number of patients a day. So if I need to spend an hour with a patient who's going through a hard time, I can spend an hour. The other patients that are waiting behind that patient understand that if they're having that same kind of problem, they get the same treatment. And pretty much everybody in our clinic feels that way. Our patients you know, come first because they are, a lot of them are very complicated and they can be very difficult to work with because as, as even some of them remind me, you know, well, you know, I am an addict. So, <laughs> so you have to, you have to have a very, I think it, it's helpful if you're more laid back and, and they feel that laid backness. Yeah. Um, part of one of the things that we've done that's actually been kind of helpful is when COVID hit, we couldn't allow people in our clinic because of the sanitizing and, and all of that was just overwhelming. And so we started seeing patients in their car. And so even now that, that the COVID thing is over and patients can come inside, I still see patients in their car. <laughs> to me, a lot of ours are more comfortable. You know, they don't, they're not having to come inside and sit in an office or in a, in a, you know, a little clinic space. And we just, and it, it, it's all very laid back. I, I went from showing up to work in slacks, a shirt and a tie, to now in the warm weather, I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> And I think it, 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 I mean, it sounds like a silly thing, but a lot of patients really just kind of like that more laid back attitude. And a few of ours back a few years back when we had, we couldn't prescribe a benzodiazepine along with Suboxone, we had to wean a lot of our folks off of that. And some of them had so much anxiety that them being able to sit in their car and talk open them up much more than having to come in the clinic and act like they were a patient. Yeah, completely. Building that strong patient-provider relationship is so fundamental for a field like addiction medicine. Honestly, any field in medicine. It's so important for us as future healthcare providers to learn how to approach patients in non-judgmental ways and actively listen to their concerns and involve them in that shared decision-making about their treatment. Do you have any other techniques or strategies to help build strong, trusting relationship between the patient and their physician? You know, it, it, it's funny to say this, but kind of like what y'all are learning at, at the COM is how to listen, active, actively listen to patients. And that's really what 95% of my folks want. Oftentimes they don't have much of a family structure or their family structure is somewhere else, or they just have a lot of issues. And so if you're going to do this, you got to be willing to just listen to patients and let them talk. You know, we as physicians think our job is to educate and to tell people what to do. And this is what you got. And this is what you need to do. And if you don't listen to me, then, you know, I found that if, if I listen to them, they're much more likely to listen to me. I'm, I'm fairly laid back anyway. You don't and, say. And so it's always interesting when the patients finally figure out that it's okay for them to turn around stuff and throw back at me. And so even to the point that, you know, since I'm outside all the time and I've had some issues with some little skin cancers and stuff, my wife makes me wear a hat when I'm outside. And so I'll even, some days I'll forget the hat and go out and see someone and they'll tell me to go back in and put my hat on. <laughs> and so developing that personal relationship 
makes me less of a doctor and more of a confidant or a friend or, you know, a grandfather figure or whatever. <laughs> and sometimes it's, it makes it a little harder for me to come down on a patient a little bit more firmly if I need to. But I found that as we've developed more of a relationship, I don't have to come down as often. You know, if they end up having a, a, a drug screen that's not quite what we'd like it to be, very often, as soon as I get to the car, they're like, I know, I messed up, I promise, you know, this is what happened and, and we'll go through it. And to me, that's that's a much, takes away a lot of the barriers for treatment. Have that open line of communication. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so we talked about kind of your part and what you do, especially with the supply set therapy and have that open line of communication with your patients. Um, a lot of this is kind of a multidisciplinary <clears throat> approach to uh, working with these patients. Uh, could you maybe highlight the benefits of involving counselors, therapists, support groups in this care process? Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, I think I've, I've mentioned a little while ago that a lot of our patients have a lot of psychological issues, abuse issues that may be led to their addiction and different sorts of things. Prior to COVID, we actually required our patients to have two group counseling sessions a month. Obviously, with, with COVID, we couldn't do that. Uh, so we began giving them assignments where they had to write out thoughts or we'd ask questions that they would have to respond to. And it's interesting, a lot of the patients, when we had counseling sessions, complained about why do we have to come to counseling sessions? Well, the reason is that studies have shown that patients that go through this kind of program with counseling, behavioral modification and whatnot, do much better. Well, it's interesting now that we can't, we haven't been able to do it. Now patients are saying, when are we going to be able to start back in the counseling sessions? And so much of our counseling, again, is not a counselor sitting down saying, this is what you have to do, but opening it up. And the patients are actually doing a lot of the counseling among themselves by sharing their experiences and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think, you know, you, you really cannot have a very successful addiction treatment program without having other areas where patients can find support. Hearing you say that kind of reminds me of uh, last year, we could go to the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. That's kind of how they went. There was someone leading the meeting, uh, kind of guiding, maybe having a through line, but then mostly it was uh, the people there that were kind of guiding each other, right. talking to each other, talking about their experience, maybe what they've done, they've struggled with. I think that's super helpful. Yeah, I think a lot of folks with substance abuse disorders they don't necessarily tell me that you don't know what you're talking about because you've never been here, but they do like to hear someone who has faced that same issue. Yeah. And then, but it has been interesting. Pretty much most of my, my folks, when they first come to the clinic, I tell them about my daughter. I think what that does for them is they say, okay, you're not doing this for money. You're doing this more for, you know, what you've been through. So I think that does help, but it's not a requirement, obviously. Yeah, having a shared experience is useful, but not mandatory. Right. Go like step four, we want to get more docs on this. Exactly. So we can hopefully help more people. And it's been interesting. A lot of a lot of our students have rotated through the clinic with me, um, and it's been interesting to see how many different students that I was kind of surprised had any interest in this sort of thing. And hopefully, that's that's one of the reasons we we opened the clinic up to students was so that they could see that. You know, yeah, I'm going to be a family doc somewhere, and I could actually put this into my practice and help a lot of folks. Definitely. And I think a lot of 
the other, like not even not even family medicine, a lot of uh, oh. other practices. <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, like I worked with a PM&R doctor, and he frequently had patients. They were coming in for joint injections, but they also had maybe they were literally going right next door to the pain management clinic as well. Right. So I think any I, any specialty can kind of benefit from what you've been telling us today. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you so much for sharing your expert opinions with our not-so-expert opinions today. Now we feel a lot more informed. Um, before we go, I would like you to uh, give a fun fact about yourself. Specifically, maybe talk about uh, one of your hobbies. I find it pretty interesting. I think the others will as well. Well, um, I, I'm sure you have, you're not talking at all about doing these crazy triathlons no. and stuff that the you other. do. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's been something that my wife, I think, kind of regrets that I ever got started <laughs> doing. In fact, kind of the go-to conversation between my wife and my, my children when I do something kind of dumb is now it's, it's Brian's fault because I started doing this when Dr. Zachariah joined the faculty. He was training for an ultra marathon, and as we talked, he, uh, he started talking about his experience with Ironman and, and doing triathlons. And so I'm thinking, you know, I bet I could do one of those short triathlons. And um, so I, I did a little sprint out in Texas and then did the second sprint. And my wife said, okay, you've gotten this out of your system, right? And I was like, no, now I'm going to try a half Ironman. And she's like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Where did you get that idea? I said, well, it was Brian. <laughs> and so even now my kids will, even if I do something that has nothing to do with running, biking, swimming or whatever, if it's just something that they think dad's kind of lost his mind, he's like, is this Brian's idea? So, <laughs> no, all things can be blamed on Dr. Zachary. That's right. He, he, he has broad shoulders. Powerful message. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your expertise today, Dr. Mitchell. Knowledge is power, and understanding addiction medicine can make a significant difference in the lives of those struggling with substance use disorders. For our listeners who want to learn more about addiction medicine, we'll provide some resources in the episode's description. Just a reminder that we would love to hear your feedback and input, which you can submit through the suggestion form on our website. So stay healthy, stay tuned, and let's do it right together.